So we have uh, been preaching through the book of Galatians, which is a beautiful, powerful letter in the, the back end of your Bible, in the New Covenant or in the New Testament. There's so much going on in this letter that we've decided to take the year to preach it to you. And we, we keep going back and forth between all these beautiful different types of things that's happening. We spent about three or four months just preaching on the doctrines, the truths that undergird the words of Paul in this letter. Um, what we've been doing the last three weeks is we've been saying, you know, there's something else going on in this letter. It's about false teachers or false gospelers who were a danger to the souls of these baby Christians in this region of Galatia. And one of the things that <clears throat> Paul does is he helps unpack for us a little bit of what it looks like for someone to be a false teacher or a false shepherd or a false gospeler, we're saying. So we're taking a few weeks to, to work through just some ideas with you from the text of Scripture on how you can spot a false gospeler. You know, I know that this whole idea is very hard for many of us because we are postmodern Bostonian Americans. That means that we have been taught not to traffic in the language of, of false or true. We have been taught that what may be true for this guy over here may not be true for this girl over here, and that truth is, is kind of arbitrary. And it is influenced by perception and language and culture and history and all kinds of other things. And we need to step away from the category of, of true. That's actually an arrogant, proud thing to do, to think that you can talk in terms of truth. And because you have lost the category of truth, you've also lost the category of false. It's another word that we're just not comfortable with. One person saying that someone else is is untrue or false, that's uncomfortable for us. That's difficult for us. We also have raised uh, kindness to an ethic that lives above true and false. And so for us, we get very uncomfortable when someone stands up and they're the only one talking and they begin to talk about, well, this is true and they are true, but this is false and they are false. That's a postmodern American thing, but that is not a biblical thing. Jesus, his prophets before him, his apostles after him, had no problem speaking in terms of true and false, and therefore safe and good and right and unsafe and dangerous. And so what we're doing is saying, as good shepherds, trying to be good shepherds in the life of a church, one of the things we want to do is one of the things that Paul did, and that is to press in to say, here are some signs that you may be encountering someone who is bringing to you a false gospel. So I know this is hard for you, but press through this with me this morning. So Matt started three weeks ago with the first sign that you may be dealing with someone who is, who is not true, who is pressing a false gospel, and that is they are cowards. If you see someone who has stepped further and further away from biblical truth because they need the applause and the affirmation and the welcome of the world, and they are very afraid that the Boston Globe or Channel 7 or 
Boston.com may have negative things to say about them, and they so badly don't want to be taunted, mocked, laughed at, or called names that they will leave truth behind for the acceptance of the world. They're afraid, afraid to stand with Jesus. It's a sign that someone may be falling into falsehood. McCann did last week. Hypocrisy is another sign of this. Whenever you hear someone, including us, and I'll say that a hundred times today, begin to speak to you supposedly truth and right doctrine and gospel, don't just listen to their words. Look at their lives. Jesus taught this. Paul did the same thing in Galatians. Those who are telling you it's so important that you keep the law, what? They don't keep the law themselves. We should always not only listen to the words of a teacher, but look at the life of a teacher. And if there is hypocrisy, if there is a lack of integrity, there may be a problem there. Okay, today I'm going to do a final one of these with you. This one is very intense and dear to my heart because our family spent many years in a church that was preaching a false gospel and we're not aware of it and we're not warned about it and had a lot of hardship through it. And so I'm pressing into this one, how to spot a false gospeler if you see that they are in it for themselves. If you see that they are in it for themselves. All right, let's start this off talking about a pyramid scheme. Do you know what that is? Have you ever been on the receiving end of a pyramid scheme recruitment conversation? Somebody trying to get you in on their pyramid. They are putting the very hard sell on you. They're trying very hard to get you to join the ranks of their organization. They are telling you how great and amazing this is going to be for you. But at the end of the day, who is the beneficiary from this sales pitch, this organization, and this pyramid? Who benefits? It's only the people at the very tippy top, the first ones in. So when I graduated from undergraduate school and I wasn't sure about exactly what I was going to be doing, I got this funny phone call. And it was so uncomfortable that I still remember it to this day. Phones still had wires. I was standing in the foyer of our house. A guy who knew a guy who knew me gave my name to this guy. And he was trying to recruit me to become a part of something called Kalo Vita. Has anyone ever heard of that? See, you haven't ever heard of that because it's gone the way of all pyramid schemes. It's gone 18 years later. Gone. Kalo Vita was a scheme, a, a sales thing, where you would go to your social network and you would interview them and you would gather information about their age and their weight and their health habits and their physical needs, and then you would recommend to them a vitamin supplement plan to make them feel, oh, so much better. And it would come in the mail every month, and you would prosper, they would prosper, and the people at the top of the pyramid would really prosper. This was an uncomfortable conversation because about 90 seconds in, I realized that the man on the phone did not have my best interests at heart. He was not interested in who I am, how I was wired, what my dreams were for my life, what my goals were, what my strengths were. 
He was in that conversation simply for his own benefit, to pull me into the sales force that I might prop up his success, his fortune, his wealth, and his fame. That conversation was not about me. It was about him. You feel that? That is what is happening in this story, in this letter that we're studying to the Galatians, in the region where Paul had been. So let's reset the context so that you have it. Paul was a street evangelist and a church planter, and he came into a city preaching the gospel of grace, freely offered, freely received, putting your trust in Jesus for your justification. Many, many Galatian Gentile people repented of their sins, believed that gospel, and these little churches were formed just like this. He was a traveling evangelist, so he moved on with his team, and on their heels came a new church planting team, some different street evangelists in a different colored bus. They were from the city of Jerusalem. Scripture calls them Judaizers trying to get the Gentiles to become like the people of Judah. And they showed up in Galatia. They were from the very conservative, very legalistic arm of the Christian church. And they came preaching a different gospel. They had a different message. They told the Galatian Christians, you not only need grace, but you also need obedience to the law. Grace plus law. You not only need faith in Jesus, but you need your religious works added to your faith if you are going to be justified. In order for you Gentiles to become fully people of God, it's not enough for you only to become Christians. You also need to become Jews. The two go together. Jesus is the Christian Messiah, and that means that obedience to the law of Moses needs to mark your life. That means that they came with a goal in mind, and that was to see as many of the Gentile men, the heads of these households, as possible, circumcised. Circumcised. That's why that word shows up in this letter, and we've heard it four times already in the short passage that Matt read. They knew that circumcision was the physical sign of belonging to the Jewish community or the people of God, and so their aim was to get to Galatia and have as many of those new Christian men circumcised as a sign that they were beginning to obey Moses. So they had to report back to the home base in Jerusalem. They would send in their reports, and the goal was we have added many to our ranks We have convinced them to be circumcised to show that they stand with us. They're on our team and not on Paul's team. Got that? That's what's happening in the context of this story. Well, Paul sees this, and he says a couple of very important things that I want to walk through. These are texts of Scripture. This is where the power of the word is from. Here's the first thing that he said about this. Galatians 6, 12. See these words with me. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. They desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. 
Okay, can you feel the play on words that's happening in these letters? He's such a great pastor and such a great writer, such a brilliant mind inspired by the Spirit. Circumcision was a surgical procedure that would affect the flesh, the body. When you were done receiving this operation, things looked different on the outside. You could show off physically changes that had happened. And Paul says that their insistence, their obsession with this outward, physical, visible, external, fleshly sign shows you exactly where their priorities are. They are all about the outside. They are all about appearances. They are all about putting on a show. They are all about being able to point to your flesh and say, look, we got them. We added them to the ranks of our pyramid. Here's a picture of all those that we have won to ourselves. You feel that? It's external. It's about the outside. It's for appearances to show how successful they were. These teachers pushing the Galatians to be circumcised was not about the joy or the peace or the holiness of the people. It was not about the grace or the glory or the sufficiency of Jesus. It was about the image and the reputation and the statistics and the success and the achievement and the self-actualization and the fame of the Jews from Jerusalem. In other words, what? They showed up and they were in this gospel thing for themselves. For themselves. It's those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. It is those who want to do this, get you on their team, so that they may boast in appearances, in accomplishments, in the flesh. It's a warning from Paul. Okay, here's the second one. He says it like this. It's beautiful. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out so that you may make much of them. Make much of you is the word that means to show affection for or to show devotion to. It's the Greek word that we get the word zealous from. They were zealous to win these people over. They pressed the hardest sales pitch that they could. They came saying, you got to jump in with us. Think about how this would have worked. They would have rolled into town and they would have said to these people, this is so great. This is so awesome that you have become Christians. Wow. We are so proud of you for making this choice. Welcome to the family of Jesus, the Messiah. We are for you. We are with you. We are Wait, 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 wait. You've been circumcised, right? The, the fathers in this community, you've all been circumcised, right? You've begun to submit to the law of Moses, haven't you? 
please don't tell us that Paul was telling you that you didn't need to do this, that just repentance and faith in Jesus was enough. He wasn't saying that, was he? Surely you understand that Jesus was Jewish, that Moses' law still holds, that faith is a good starting point, but obedience to Jesus, to Moses' law is necessary. So here's what we'll do. We're going to finish what you have so beautifully begun. We're going to take you to the next stage of this Jesus journey. We're going to get you circumcised. The NIV translates this verse like this. Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate you from us and from Jesus so that they may have you all to themselves. Feel that? Who is this about? Who is this about? Phillips is another Bible translation. It's a paraphrase. Sometimes it's helpful. It says it like this. I know how keen these teachers are to win you over. But can't you see that it is for their own ends? They would like to see you and me separated altogether so that they may have you all to themselves. There it is again. Those are good translations. You fear this verse is saying they are trying to win you over, to flatter you, to praise you, to sell you, to recruit you. And in doing that, they will separate you from grace and from Jesus, and it will be about propping up themselves in love, in love for you, in love for them, Paul says, watch out, watch out, be warned. This is what it looks like when a false gospeler comes. They are in it for themselves. Okay, now this morning is just about hearing that warning from Scripture. There are those who would roll into our lives, Christian and non-Christian, selling gospels that are not for your good, that are not for your joy, that are not for your life, but are for themselves, for themselves. All right, now let's talk about what this may look like in our day. It's 2014. There are no more Judaizers. I don't think anyone has pressed you to be circumcised this week. Any of you men, this is not an issue in our time. But there are false gospels all over the place, including Christian ministries, where they are in it for themselves, and we need to be aware of them. And not just out there. Part of this sermon, and we're going to press into now, is to ask hard questions about ourselves. Is this us? Does this look like the way that we are going about the ministry that Jesus has called us to? So I want to ask you, what would be the symptoms in 2014 church culture that we would be beginning to be in this thing for ourselves, or that someone coming to you with the gospel would be in it for themselves. Do you know what I mean by symptoms that show that a disease has taken root? Let me give you an illustration for this. One of the things that I did way too much of before I went to Africa was read stuff about Africa and all the bad things that can happen to you out there. I should have just not done some of that reading. So one of the things that I read about was malaria. You know about malaria? Here's what happens if you get malaria. There's really three basic symptoms. Number one is the chills. 
you get the chills to begin with, and that's how you know, uh uh-oh, you might have malaria, chills, and nausea and some other things, but it's marked out by, you know that feeling when you're about to get a bad flu and you get the chills. Then it moves into a very high fever. Within an hour or two, your body temperature rises, and the goosebumps go away, and now you just become red and hot. And then because your body temperature has risen, the third sign that you may have malaria is uh, drenching sweats cover your body because you're so hot right now. Chills, fever, sweats. The second day that I'm there, I'm hanging outside in the banda outside of Kevin's place, and a mosquito the size of a tennis ball swarms over to me and bites me right on the ankle. I'm like, I am going to die right in the jungle of Africa right now. For the rest of the week, I was on lookout for these warning signs of malaria. At night, it was a little chilly, nice little breeze. I'd be like, oh no, it's cold, it's freezing. Savannah, are you cold? I'm freezing. I think I got the chills. Next day, like at noon, when the sun is its hottest height in the thing and we're out in the sun, I'm like, Savannah, come here, feel my forehead. Do I feel hot to you? Don't lie to me, tell me, is that hot? Is this normal? Sam and I walked through the village like a mile-long walk up and down these hills in Central Africa. Now I'm sweating. I'm like, oh, God, beads of sweat. This is it. The malaria's got me. This whole time I am on the lookout for malaria and its symptoms. That's ridiculous, and I'm an American pampered, spoiled baby, and there was no need for that. But do you feel how we can be on the lookout for symptoms that may show there's a disease that's taking root in here? That's how I want us to be about anything out there or in here that might say they're in this ministry for themselves. So let's talk through some of these. I'm going to put them up here. It's not an exhaustive list, but all of these are backed up in this text, in this book, and in this story. So one is this. Oh, this one. Okay. Self-promotion. Self-promotion. There is a disease of self-promotion in the life of the American evangelical church, and you know it, and I know it. One of the most terrifying things that you can do is to go onto church websites and click on the leaders page and see the way that we choose to put forward the resume and the accomplishments of the leaders in our churches, and it's frightening. This could be a sign that there is an issue with making much of ourselves in Christian ministry. Let me give you a story about how this has worked out in the life of our network to a good end, but I want you to feel the temptation that this is. So one of the brothers in our network is a writer, an author, and he wrote a book on marriage. And from some good motives and then some not good ones that we'll talk about, his church hired a firm to promote the book for them. The goal was to get the book on the New York Times bestseller list so that the whole world would be aware of this book, and that by reading this book, they would be pressed to the glories of the gospel of Jesus. But the means by which this promotion worked was this. The church paid the company $600,000. The company took the $600,000 minus their cut and bought tens of thousands of the books. And then... They gave out the books to interested parties that were on their list like myself. And so what happened in that first week of the release of the book? Oh my goodness, there was $500,000 worth of books purchased and sold. 
How does the New York Times decide who makes the New York Times bestseller list? Volumes sold in the first week. And so what happened? My buddy ended up on the New York Times bestseller list. And now what do you get to do? You get to tell people, I'm a New York Times bestselling author. Look at that. Do you feel that? A couple months later that this had happened, came out. It's always going to come out. And this became a public issue. Was this holy? Was this unholy? Was this good? Was this no good? Is this the way that a Christian minister should be promoting themselves in their book? Now, beautifully, our brother, who's a godly guy, uh, thought about it, looked at it, took godly counsel and said, no, this was wrong, and issued a public repentance and will not claim that for his name and his bio anymore, New York Times best-selling author. So that's been beautifully, thankfully rectified. But do you feel what was going on there? Inside of the heart, even of ministers and pastors, is a temptation to say, if I make much of myself, that will make much of Jesus. And my means don't need to be holy and godly to get to that end. I can promote me, and that will promote Jesus. If you see that anywhere, if you see that in us, if that's a part of the way that the person that is gospeling you is rolling, there's a problem. There's no promotion of self in the kingdom of God. This is a sign that you may be dealing with someone who's far away from Jesus. All right, how about this one? An obsession with numbers. I don't know if you know, but this is also a disease in the American church. I've got a friend who is a part of a bigger denomination, and he said he's just started going to the denomination meetings, and instead of introducing himself as Pastor uh, Johnson, he just said, 185, 250, 11. 185, 250, 11. How you doing? 185, 250, 11. And finally, somebody stopped him and said, what are, you, are you okay? What are you doing? What is this numbers thing? He goes, oh, I, I just know what everybody's going to ask me, so I just want them to know right off the bat. There's 185 people in my church, our budget's $250,000, and we had 11 conversions this year. I'm just getting it off my chest right away. So we, we laughed about it, and it's funny, but it's a sign in the heart of the American church that there's a problem. We are obsessed with how many people come to our church, obsessed with labels like the fastest growing church in New England obsessed with seeing our trajectories always and only going up, up, and away. Obsessed with how big our staff is and how many programs we have. Obsessed with how many baptisms took place. That's the new number, right? How many baptisms happened this year? Now, are numbers a good thing? Totally. Are they necessary? Absolutely. Can you have them in a holy place? Yes. But if you sense that there is an obsession with inflating statistics and seeing our worth being locked into how many, how many, how many, you may be dealing with someone who is in this for themselves. Okay, how about this one? A body trail. A body trail. You know what I mean by this? So this was a mark of the church that my family survived through when I was a teenager. Building up the empire of self, the pastor would recruit like crazy to get great workers and leaders to be a part of the team. If they join the pyramid, the pyramid will grow and his spot will grow higher. 
But something very interesting happened over seven to ten years in the life of this church. Leader after leader after leader was betrayed or burnt out or thrown out or conveniently found into a, a ditch on the side of the road like Goodfellas. It was epidemic. What was happening there? The guy at the top of the pyramid was happy to bring you in when you were following suit with what he needed, and your performance was very successful, and you were very fruitful and healthy, but as soon as you were not talking the party line, or as soon as the ministry you were in charge of was not as fruitful as it needed to be, what would happen? You would be removed and cast to the side, and you would be replaced. Now again, in the life of ministry, sometimes you're going to have to fire somebody. These things happen. But if you see a body trail, and the only bodies remaining are the ones at the top of the pyramid, you may be dealing with someone who is in that thing for themselves. And people, leaders, are just the means to the end of their fame. How about this one? Slander of all others. So you come across someone who's a gospeler who never, ever, ever has anything good to say about any other church ministry, or teacher, there may be a problem here. So my family ended up leaving that church and going to the Forestdale Community Church right over here in Malden, which planted our church. And about a year after that thing happened, we ran into the pastor's wife at a funeral or a wedding or something. And I'll never remember standing and hearing, overhearing the conversation. She said to my mom, why are you guys going to that dead church? You need to come back. It's time for you to come back. You feel that? What is that? That is, there's one pyramid, and we're at the top, and there's no room for anyone else at the top. There's only one good church, and it's our church, and my church, and any other church is a dead church. You feel that? If you see that, there's trouble. That's what the Judaizers were doing, right? Rolling into town saying, Paul's no pastor. Paul's no legitimate teacher. Paul's no apostle. You have to jump in with us. How about this one? All flattery, no rebuke. All flattery, no rebuke. So this is incredibly tempting for my soul, and I'm sorry if you've been on the receiving end of this from me. When I get into fear about the life of our church, when I get into some of these other ditches, it becomes very easy for me to say, look, I need this person to be performing in this way, and so what I'm going to do is go and sell them, and I'm going to do that by flattering them. I'm going to pull them where I need them in my pyramid, and I'm going to do it by telling them how awesome they are, and how great they are, and how happy I am to have them, and how needed that they are. And my lips begin, not to encourage, talk about that in a second, but to flatter when you do that, you're terrified to do what? To correct. What happens if you correct? You might lose that person. The pyramid might shrink a little bit. And so it's all flattery and it's no truth telling. We've seen this in the life of church with other places. I've been around friends who were so not in a good place in the gospel with their church. And someone came through who was a big potential giver and a big business mind and they pulled that person in and didn't ask any questions about how they were doing and how their marriage was, where their faith was, and where their life was at, 
but they just used them to prop up their ministry to make it grow. And they did it through flattery. If you get around a pastor or a teacher who always and only flatters you and never corrects you, there may be a problem. All right, one more. I could keep going all day I want. Lots and lots of legalisms. So the legalisms in this story was circumcision. Everybody had to have that. Kosher foods, everybody had to have the same exact diet. Holy days, everybody had to be doing the same thing on all the holy days. Legalisms prop up the person at the top who looks like, what a great job you've done of pulling all these people to follow you. If you're ever in a situation where dress code and all these other little things don't become matters of conscience and holiness and wisdom, but matters of law, and you're expected to conform, and there's a homogeneity throughout, and everybody looks and sounds exactly like the people at the top of the pyramid, you may be dealing with someone who is in it for themselves. I ran through those fast, they're heavy and weighty, you can think on them, but they're all warning signs, symptoms of a very serious disease. Paul says you need to watch out, you need to be careful. And then what does he press as the remedy for all of this? I love this. Here's how he says it. He says, but far be it from me. So that's my prayer for this church. That is my prayer for you. That you would say, far be it from me ever to inch toward being in gospel ministry, gospel community for myself. You feel the separation? Please, God, let that never be me. Please keep these symptoms and this disease far from me. Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Where is our boast? Who's at the top of our pyramid? What is it that we are selling people on and excited about? It's the gospel. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. You find a true teacher and they will beat, beat, beat the drum of Jesus and his grace and his gospel and his sufficiency and his glory and his power and his cross. That's our boast. That's our aim. That's our goal. That's the only thing that I boast in. And then he says this, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I love this. It's so important. Let's make this decision together today. Here's the world. All of its accolades, all of its approval, all of its measures of success, all of its affirmations, all of its wealth, all of its fame, all of its 9,000 word Wikipedia entries, all of its applause. It's the world. What does Paul say that by the grace of God, he has done with all of it? He's taken the world and all of that and he's crucified it. In other words, I'm dead to all of this. This doesn't register with me. I just, it doesn't matter. My earnings power, my reputation, my fame, my pyramid, my success, it doesn't exist. It's been crucified to me and I am dead to it. 
It doesn't register. Only Christ. Only Christ. One boast and one aim, the glory of God in the person and the work of Jesus. And there is life there. That's the kind of gospel culture that we're trying to build together here. So let's finish by saying, do we look like that? Do we look like that? Okay, I'm going to put a corresponding list of six things up here, and we'll finish with these. And I want to give you the freedom to think on these and to press us in the direction of these. Everybody in here who's a member of Seven Mile Road is free to press us in the direction of these. So here we go. What would a church that is dead to the world and dead to self-interest and is not in it for themselves look like? No rock star pastors. Will you please be committed with us to this? Now we know that there's a level of honor and respect and love that we should give to those that Jesus has given to shepherd and correct and care for us. I'm not saying that we throw that away. I'm saying that if there's anything ever in the life of our church that feels like we're exalting a small group of people to the top of a pyramid, we have to kill it. Stick with us on this. Will you do something with me this week? Will you go to the leaders page of our website? Will you look at the bios that we put up there because you need to do that to help others connect with the church? Will you read through that? And if anything in there feels like that kind of feels like an uplifting, an exalting, a boasting in the person of the pastor. Let us know. We will jump in there. We will readjust that. We will have tried there and everywhere else to say, there's, there's no pyramid here. It's Jesus and it's the rest of us. All right, how about this one? Humble and holy ambition. Should we be going for great things for God together? Should we want to fill this church up and plant and fill it up and plant? Should we want to give $6 million a year to the work of Jesus? Should we want to baptize hundreds and hundreds of Bostonians? I'm cool with that. But there's a way to go about that holy and humble and not obsess about it. If you see anything in us that begins to talk more about and have more joy in or more despair over statistics, or numbers, there's something wrong. Press us on that. All right, how about this? No body trail. None. You should be able to go to any leader that's ever served in the life of our church and have a conversation with them, and they should be able to say, I was loved. I was nurtured. I was corrected. I was cared for. I loved my time at Seven Mile Road. And I don't just mean no body trail among leadership. I mean that we would never see people as a means to the end of propping up the life of Seven Mile Road. It's very difficult for a church that is so bent on seeing others come into the fold of God to be very careful that we never begin to see people as potential statistics or conversions for our fame and our wealth and our success that we wouldn't be known as the church that invests in and loves people only as long as eventually they come around to believing the gospel, that we wouldn't even have that body trail, but that this would be about Jesus and about us last and about the good of others. 
Can we plant a church that has a culture of no body trail? That would be exciting. How about teamwork with others? Is it the joy of our heart when we get reports from other churches in the Boston area that are growing, that are successful, where the gospel is advancing? Or is there grumbling? Is, is there frustration? Is there envy? You will know right away whose pyramid you are building if you see others succeeding and your heart doesn't race to be joyful. Let's build a culture where there is great joy and service and humility and teamwork with others. All right, how about this one? A church where there is both encouragement and correction together. So there'll be no flattery here, but there is such a thing as gospel encouragement, right? Rejoicing in the fruit of the Spirit. Rejoicing when you see someone maturing in holiness. Encouraging them, praising them to the glory of God. Let's have that, but let's also have correction. Let's not be so afraid to mutually submit to each other, to speak hard words to each other, and to say, hey, I care more about you than you just coming and giving and propping up some pyramid. I want to see you holy. I'm going to take the risk of you leaving by really loving you where it matters. That would be beautiful. And that would show that we are not in this for ourselves. We are in this for the good of the other. And then lastly, how about holy diversity. So diversity is a very confusing thing in our day. We want diversity that includes sinfulness and a casting off of the moral law of God and the death of those who are pursuing diversity. That's not what I'm talking about. But within the life of the church, there is to be a holy diversity and difference. People who look different, sound different, have different hobbies, different personalities, different way of doing their gospel thing. Not just a bunch of robots that look like the person at the top. A church filled with people who are so humble and so holy and so free in the gospel that there's a diversity among us to the glory of God. I would do anything to be a part of and lead and live my life in a church that looks like this. A people who are not in it for themselves. A people who are in it for the other and for the glory of God. So I issue this warning, and I issue this challenge and this call to join us this morning in building a church that looks like this. All right, let's pray for that together. Father, I thank you for the truths of Scripture. We recognize our tendency towards sinfulness in a thousand different ways so fast as we go through these verses and these realities. And we're sick, we're sick, but I thank you for the good news of the gospel, that by your stripes we're healed, that you're making us brand new, that you're moving on our hearts, that we might be the people of God in a beautiful way. So I pray that for your glory and for the good of the others in this room, that we would all come last, that we would all dive off of the top of the pyramid and get on the bottom and be serving Jesus and his people with humble and holy hearts. I pray that you would use these words to convict us and to change us, and that here and in other places there would be gospel cultures that reflect beautifully gospel truth, and that to the glory of God. I also pray that you would shut down churches where the leaders are in it for themselves, that you would rescue saints from those 
hellish places and that your glory would be known in the humbling of those who are proud and in the exalting of those who are doing this humble and that we somehow might be counted among that number. Hear my prayer for these things. Bind our hearts together around them and answer, I pray. Amen. Amen.